Well, I want to welcome you. Um, my name is Mike. I'm the senior pastor here at the church. And it's really great to see you here in God's house on this high day of the church. I believe that it really blesses God that you've come into his house today. And my prayer for you is that he will bless you in response, that you will leave this place feeling the blessing of God on your life. Now, having been at this church now for over nine years and having the opportunity of preaching year after year at Easter, I have found that I usually take this opportunity to make a defense for the empty tomb, to lay out for you some of the reasons why we know for sure that he is actually alive. And there are amazing reasons, by the way, for that. In fact, I would argue it's the best, the best event of history that is most credible. But I'm going to leave you to do some of that research on your own. I'm going to, I'm going to begin by assuming what we said at the beginning is true, that alleluia, Christ is risen. And I'm going to ask this question, why does it matter? So what? If it is true and he's risen, why does that matter? Why should we care? And the answer that I'm going to give is this. Because Jesus rose, he invites us into a new kind of life. He had a resurrection life, and in so doing, in rising to new life, he is inviting us into a new kind of life. And I would like you to consider entering into that newness of life. Now, to to get there, we have to start back at our old life. And I want to consider some things about the old life. By that, I mean the kind of typical life you have lived at one time or maybe are living now, the kind of typical life that most of your neighbors, most of the people in our society live. It's marked by various ambitions, desires, pursuits. And frankly, as many of the billions of people as there are, there are even thousands more of those pursuits. There's an endless sea of things we could devote our lives to. But the thing that is true about all of these is they can't satisfy us. If you get a little bit, you'll want a little bit more. That's the truth. And it doesn't matter what category we're in. You could start with relationships. You want the right relationship. You want to be married and you're not, or you were and you're not now, or you want to have a child and you can't, or you, um, let's say it's power. You want to make it to the top of your company and be the president. And let's say maybe it's possessions. You've always wanted to drive a sports car or experiences. I've always wanted to travel through Europe or whatever it might be. You know, in recent years, we've come up with this term of a bucket list, where people make lists of things that they have to do before they kick the bucket. And they use this as their driving ambition for their life. They're trying to check off the list and work their way down, thinking, believing the lie, that if they get to the end of their list, they can die a satisfied person. They have done what is most important. And you know what's true? They never do. Even if they get to the end of the bucket list, they never are satisfied. I'm really grateful that at the age of 17, I came to that realization. And it came because I have varied interests. And those interests last for a while. And then they start to disappoint and fade away. I'm from the north. And up there, we had real seasons. And we had sports that lined up with those seasons. So in the fall, I played soccer. And as the school year was coming around and we started training, I got really excited about soccer and got into it. And about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the season, I started to resent soccer. And it was like, I'm tired of this. But thankfully, then ice hockey started. And I did that through the winter. And about three quarters of the way through, I got tired of going to ice practice and all that stuff. But thankfully, the spring came and then tennis started. And I'd go through that. And three quarters of the way through, guess what? It was disappointing. And I started to recognize this annual cycle. 
And throughout my life, it doesn't matter what the pursuit is. If I make it the reason for my existence, I am disappointed every time. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad, but if they become what I live for, they destroy me. They eat up my life, and they do the same for you. Now, the Apostle Paul once said something that was really telling, because it starts out small, this desire for whatever it is, but it grows into something that consumes you. Listen to what he said to a young pastor he was discipling. He said to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Right there, it lays out to us the two kinds of life, the old life and the new. We love something or we love God. And that's, that's the contrast right there. Now, Thankfully, the, the Bible has the antidote to this problem. And my text, as Steve prayed, and, or as he read earlier, was from, is from Romans chapter 6. If you want to follow along in a pew Bible, it, you don't have to, but it's page, six, or page 942. I'm going to look at one simple verse, and it's Romans 6, verse 4. It's appropriate for this morning since we have baptisms on Easter, and it mentions baptisms. But let me back up before I get to 6-4 and explain to you the context here. The Apostle Paul has just said in the previous chapter that no matter how big the sin of a person is, God's grace is even bigger. Where sin increases, grace abounds. It gets even more. Now, a thinking person would automatically come to a conclusion. Well, if there's more grace when there's more sin, we ought to sin more. That, that makes sense, right? That's logical because then there will be more grace. And a lot of people do this. In fact, it's the God will forgive me later theology. I'm going to do this thing now, and then later I'll come back to God, because I know he will always forgive, which is true. He will always forgive. As soon as you repent and turn to him, he will forgive you. But people abuse that in lots of different ways. I, I think of the famous St. Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century. When he was 17 years of, of age, he went off to live in the big city and experience life. And he fell into a very promiscuous pattern. And he knew God was real. And he knew the tomb was empty. And he prayed one time something that's very famous. He said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> God will forgive me later theology. I'm going to pursue this thing now, and then later I'll ask for forgiveness. Or I came across these words from the author W.H. Alden. He said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Now, there is a fundamental flaw in that thinking. He is assuming that committing those crimes is actually going to satisfy him in any way, or that God doesn't care that he's doing that. He's treating him like a cosmic vending machine. Just say the prayer and get the forgiveness and just move on. Here's the myth that the enemy would have you believe. True freedom is doing whatever you want. And it's totally a myth because you end up becoming a slave. Here's the truth. God, who is the loving God, created you and he built right into the fabric of your being a need to serve and love him. And anything less than that will land you in slavery, whether you believe it or not. 
you will be a kind of slave, just like an addict who needs a little bit more and a little bit more to get the high, to get the hit. And you'll, like my teenage days, you'll keep jumping around from something to the next thing or someone to the next one or whatever it is. You'll be pursuing it to meet a need. Living for anything else is slavery. You know, the very first sin recorded in the Bible in Genesis 3, of course, is the famous Adam and Eve. But in Genesis 4, there's another famous sin recorded, and it's Cain slaying his brother Abel. And when Cain gets jealous of Abel, he starts to have an anger that makes him want to do something about it. And God warns him. He comes to him and he says to Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door to have you, but you must rule over it. And right there is laid out that idea of masters. Sin wants to rule over you, but you've got to master it. What does he do? He doesn't master it. He, he exercises his anger against his brother. He kills Abel, and he suffers the consequences of that. But see, sin is a slave master, and it wants to take us. It wants to eat up our lives. Friday night, we had a really powerful Good Friday service of, of darkness, a service of tenebrae, to look at the, the cross. And I came home from that and felt compelled to pull out Mel Gibson's old movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I watched the whole thing. And it had been a number of years since I watched it. It's hard. It's hard to watch it because it puts my sin on display and how much it cost our Lord. But there was something this time around that as I was thinking through this idea of slavery to sin, I started tracking with the character of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And you know, in the, in the movie, as in the Bible, he, he leads a band of the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he has arranged a signal that he will kiss Jesus and thus betray him. And that's how they'll know who to arrest. So he goes up to Jesus and trepidatiously, and he kisses him, and then Jesus says, Judas, with a kiss, would you betray the Son of Man? Now, why that is so striking to me is I thought, how does, how does someone who's seen the glory of God get to that place where he's willing to betray Jesus? Well, it's the insidiousness of sin. It started way back here with a little desire for money. He made some money, and he liked the sense of power it gave him. And so he gradually let it get more and more control. And so he worked his way into the role of being the treasurer for the apostles. He kept the money that they took for the poor. And the Bible tells us that he would help himself to it every once in a while. He'd just skim a little off the top, put in his pocket. And gradually, it became so much his master that he went to the rulers and he said, I will betray Jesus for how much, how, how much will you give me if I betray Jesus? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. And the scene that Gibson portrays is really powerful. They throw him a little satchel of 30 pieces of silver, but he fumbles it when they throw it at him and, it, and, they, and the coins fall out all over the pavement. And he starts crawling around, like collecting these things up like a, like a slave. And they all turn their backs on him and just walk away in disgust. And he takes his little money and then he goes out and he does the deed. And then it has so not satisfied him that not even the money feels good anymore. And he goes back and he throws it into the temple and then he takes his own life. It is, he's become entirely consumed with something. It has consumed him and he has no life whatsoever. And it shows us the progression. Now, thankfully, Romans 6 tells us the other side of this. And Romans 6, 4 says that we who are believers in Jesus, who trust in him, we were um, therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we are aligned with Jesus' death, and because death couldn't hold him down, 
it won't hold us down either. We'll put to death the old person, buried with him in baptism, and then offer it a newness of life. And this Easter season is about learning to walk into that, entering into that newness of life. One of the things about this new life is it's broken the power of sin. You actually don't have to sin anymore if you've given your life to Christ. If you are baptized into him, he has broken the power of sin. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the famous uh, 20th century British preacher, had a really powerful illustration. I really liked it. He, you know, being from England, he sees all these uh, sheep pastures and they have rock walls that keep the sheep in their pens. He said, imagine a sheep pasture with walls that are so high a sheep could never get out of it. And in that is symbolic of the life of a slave under Satan. That, that is, those are his sheep, he's a bad shepherd, and he is dominating them. The thief, he's called, he kills and steals and destroys. He's in there overseeing them. And then when they're baptized and buried with Christ, it is as if God lifts that sheep up over the wall and puts him into another pasture right next to it. Now, the thing that's different there is he's free. He now has a good shepherd to serve who loves him and is inviting him into a new kind of life. But there are two problems. One is the habits of the prior years. Everything in that sheep is conditioned to do the wrong stuff. He's practiced it for so long. The other thing is the enemy can still yell over the wall. Hey, don't believe that. It's a lie. God's dead. That never happened. You can't prove it. The Bible's not trustworthy. You should just do whatever you want. He's a slave master. If you want to be free, do whatever you want. And we start to believe those lies. But we don't have to. That's the point of the newness of life. We don't have to. But what you recognize is that there are two masters. There is one who is good, and there is one who wants to kill you and destroy your life. Now, we're, we're going to serve something. So let's serve someone who is worthy. Let's serve someone who loves us. And let me tell you why Jesus is better. And these are just a couple just a couple, a few of his examples of the goodness of who he is. While we were his enemies, he came and died for us. He didn't wait till we cleaned up our act and got worthy. He came while we were still his enemies to win us, to rescue us. He took our punishment so that when we were ready, forgiveness would be available. Whenever that would come in your life, when you're ready to, to repent and turn to the Lord, forgiveness is there. He's quicker to forgive than you are to repent. Jesus made that possible for us. He also earned our salvation. He did the, he did the heavy lifting. He earned it on the cross because we can't. There's nothing we could do to merit what we've been given in him. He did that for us. And he loved us even to the point of death, of shedding his blood on the cross. Now, what that does is it gives you Incredible self-esteem, self-worth. How valuable is something? It's determined by what someone's willing to pay for it, right? Yesterday was a beautiful day, and Heather and I did a, a bunch of chores, a bunch of yard work. We, we worked until I'm still sore from it, and really investing in our home. And as we were finishing up, in the mailbox was one piece of mail, and it was a flyer from a neighborhood realtor, and it had a list of all the houses in our neighborhood recently sold, and it had a list of all the ones that are currently up for sale, and it had the prices on there. And I just kind of casually said, after all this work we did in our yard, I went, hey, Heather, if someone right now offered us 300 grand for this house, would you take it? See, we, we went back and forth. We decided 350 So if you want our house, that's the price. <laughs> it's not worth that much. But if that's what someone is willing to pay for it, then it is worth that much, right? How much are you worth? He shed his blood on that cross. That makes you infinitely valuable. That means 
you are worth everything. You're worth the blood of the Son of God. That raises your self-esteem. It has to. That's what he's done for you. Now, this new kind of life is about his life flowing through you, and you have to be connected to him. Let me give you an illustration that I think is really helpful. This is a, I want to put a picture up here of a couple from Iowa. I got this picture from an ABC, online ABC News article. In 2011, um, they had a car accident. Their, their names are Gordon and Norma Yeager, and they've been married 72 years. He was 94 and she was 90. And they did everything together. They loved one another. It was the perfect picture of a relationship. Um, People just admired the kind of love they had for one another. And they were in this car accident, and it was a really bad one. And so they were rushed to the hospital, and the doctors did everything they could working on them. And when they got to the place where they realized there's nothing left that we can do, we just have to wait, because they were so close, they actually rolled both of the beds into the same room right next to one another so they could hold hands. So they were holding hands, and they were both in a lot of pain, and Gordon died in that spot. His countenance changed. His skin got kind of gray and ashy. It was clear that he was not alive. And a son, one of their sons, looked over and saw on the monitor that his heart was still beating, but he was clearly dead. And the attendant pointed something out. He said, no, that's not, that's not his heart. That's actually your mom's heart beating through his hand and getting picked up on the monitor. Now, here's the powerful thing about it. She died an hour later. But if our hand is connected to Jesus, his life flows through our dead bodies and gives us new life, and he will never die. He'll never die again. So getting connected to the Lord leads us into this new kind of life. Yes, it requires a death of sorts. You have to put to death the old ways. You have to repent and turn to him. And then what he offers you is so amazing. He offers you this this new kind of life. It's not slavery anymore. If you think about somebody you love, really love somebody, you care about what they care about. You want to find out what they like, what they don't like. If they want sugar and, co- sugar and cream in their coffee, you go and make them coffee, and you do it that way because you know they like it, and it pleases you to see them happy, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, right? That's the way that love works. And what starts out for us as our obligations, yes, he is the Lord of the universe, and we have to bow before him and serve him. But what we find is because he is such a good Lord, what his obligation very quickly becomes love. We long to know what God cares about, what he likes, what he doesn't like. We start to get a real sense of pleasure when we serve him because we're pleasing him. Let me conclude by just sharing with you a lyric from a very famous composer. He's actually the person who penned the song we all know, Amazing Grace. This is John Newton. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Jesus is alive and it is a blessing to serve him. Would you enter into the newness of life today and pursue him with all that you are? It will satisfy you. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are such an amazing Lord. And we will spend the rest of our lives marveling at what you did to win us. Lord, would you heal us from our misguided affections and interests? Help us to learn your wisdom 
that in serving you there is joy and great satisfaction. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.